Delighted to be with you as we continue our study of Matthew's gospel. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and then we're going to go and read through the first 14, 15 verses of Matthew's 26th chapter. Uh, we may go on to verses 17 and following, but we're going to just take a look at least the first 15 or 16 verses uh, to begin with. So let's start with a word of prayer. O Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, turning now to Matthew chapter 26, we're going to start at verse 1 and read through, as I said, the first 15 or 16 verses, and then come back and take a closer look. This is a very important section of Matthew's gospel, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, Matthew chapter 26, let's go ahead and start at verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. We have been studying the Gospel of Matthew now for about 25 chapters, and for, I think it's almost two years. And everything that we have been looking at over the course of these two years and these 25 chapters has been moving toward this great moment. The entire narrative has been moving inexorably toward this great moment, chapters 26 through 28 of Matthew's Gospel. This is really the heart of this gospel, and not just the heart of the gospel, but the events that are depicted here are really the heart of the Christian message. Uh, I sometimes say to people that if you can understand the significance of the events in Matthew's chapters 26 through 28, then you understand the Christian message. You understand what Christianity is really all about. On the other hand, if you understand a great many things about the Bible, a great many things about religion, even a great many things about Jesus Christ, but you fail to grasp the significance of the events that are described here in these three chapters, then you have missed the heart of Christianity. Because really the essence of Christianity is not so much about what Jesus taught. 
We're living in an age in which people like to say, well, Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a great prophet. Jesus was a great moral exemplar, all of which is true. But really, the heart of the Christian gospel is not so much about what Jesus taught or said as it is about what Jesus did, what Jesus accomplished by his death and his resurrection. And that's what these chapters are all about. You know, it's really interesting. If you study the Apostles' Creed, you'll notice that the whole of Jesus' life, we know that Jesus lived on this planet for about 33 years. He ministered for three of those years. And yet the whole of his life is distilled in the Apostles' Creed in those words, born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. Did you ever notice that every time we stand up and profess our faith in the words of the Creed on Sunday, we go immediately from born of the Virgin Mary, that is to say the story of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, to the story of the cross. There's no mention, at least in the words of the Creed, no mention whatsoever of Jesus' early life, no mention whatsoever of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, no reference to the Sermon on the Mount, or the teaching on the plain, or the miracles, or the feeding of the 5,000, no reference to any of those things, the raising of people from the dead. It goes immediately from born of the Virgin Mary to suffered under Pontius Pilate. That is a reminder to us that this is really the heart of Christianity. So we are really entering into the most significant events in all of history. And they are ones that we need to take a close look at. We need to approach these with an open heart. Now, sometimes when we look at these events, when we look at Jesus' death upon the cross, his betrayal at the hands of his own people, and his betrayal into the hands of the Romans, we sometimes come away with the impression that Jesus' death was a tragic accident. And I want you to understand that Jesus' death certainly was tragic. This was the most tragic event in all of history that men and women should deny and kill the Son of God. This is the most wicked crime that has ever been performed by human beings. But while it is certainly a tragic event, the one thing I want you to understand, and you're going to see that very clearly in today's lesson, Jesus' death was not an accident. It was a tragedy, but it was not a tragic accident. We said that this whole gospel has been moving toward this great moment, but there is a greater sense in which all of history up to this point had been moving toward this great moment. I sometimes say that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not merely an event in history, it is an event in eternity. All of history flows toward that point, and all of history flows from that point. It is the central point of human existence and human history. Now, just so you get a sense of how this really is, how this is not a messy accident, but all part of God's plan, and how everything has been moving toward this great focal point, I want you to put your finger there in Matthew chapter 26 and turn back to the very beginning of the gospel, or to the very beginning of the Bible. We're going to go through a number of biblical verses, uh, some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament, but what I want you to notice is that this has been from the very beginning, in fact, even before the beginning, part of God's sovereign plan for the human race. So keeping your finger there in Matthew chapter 26, go back to the very beginning of the Bible to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 is the description of the fall of the human race. 
the rebellion of the first man and the first woman in the Garden of Eden. The story is familiar, uh, I think, to most of us. We're not going to read through the whole thing, but we're going to take a look at verses 14 and 15 in particular. You know the story, the serpent came and beguiled the woman and she ate of the tree, the tree that was forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they, she then proceeded to give some of that fruit to her husband and he ate. And we're told that their eyes were open. They recognized that they were naked and they hid themselves from the Lord in the garden. Now this represented the fact that that relationship with God was broken. And we're told that the Lord came looking for them, walking in the cool of the day in the garden and crying out, Adam, where are you? And finally, when they revealed themselves, the Lord asked them what had been done. And you'll recall how the whole story unfolded. Uh, Adam said, well, the woman that you gave me, uh, she caused me to eat. And the woman, of course, uh, didn't want to take the blame. So she said, the serpent, the serpent beguiled me and I ate. And then this is the conversation, we pick it up here at verse 14, this is the conversation between the Lord and the serpent, the serpent representing Satan. We read, then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, theologians often refer to verse 15 here in Genesis chapter 3, the very first book of the Bible, as the proto-evangelion. Evangelion means good news. That's where we get the term evangelist or evangelical. It means glad tidings, good news, gospel. And proto means first. You have a prototype. It's the first type of something. Well, the proto-evangelion is the first proclamation of the good news, the first proclamation of the glad tidings. And it's right here at the very beginning, at the moment of the fall. The human race at this point has been ruined by man's rebellion. Man has a desire to be like God, to be the master of his own faith, the captain of his own destiny. And out of that desire, he rebels against God. And the relationship with God is severed. It is broken. And yet God, in great mercy and in great love, makes a promise right here at the very beginning, at the moment of the fall. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his heel, but he shall crush your head or bruise your head. What is that a reference to? The seed of the woman is a reference to the coming Messiah. Centuries, thousands of years hence, Jesus would appear upon the scene. He would mount the arms of the cross, give himself as an atoning sacrifice for the whole world, and in so doing, would once and for all defeat Satan. And this first proclamation of the gospel happens when? At the moment of the fall. See, this was part of God's plan from the beginning. Paul makes this same point in Galatians. If you turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul says, 
And when the time was right, or when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. He's going back and he's capturing some of those themes in Genesis, the born of the woman part, the one who is the seed of the woman would come in the fullness of time. Paul was saying, God had been waiting all of these centuries, and when the time was just right, he sent forth his son to perform what had been promised at the beginning. We have the same kind of idea in that most famous of all biblical passages, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he did what? He sent his son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus' death upon the cross was not a tragic accident. It was tragic, but it was not an accident. It was all part of God's plan. And it wasn't just his plan from the beginning. Sometimes when we think about Jesus' death, we get into our minds the idea that Jesus' death was God's plan B, that God's plan A was to create a world that was idyllic, but mankind in his rebellion ruined all of that, and therefore, God had to kind of scratch his head and come up with another plan to sort of redeem the situation. But that's not the biblical picture at all. Uh, turn, if you will. We've been in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Turn, if you will, to the very last book of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 13. Now, both Genesis and Revelation are describing real events, although they are using very symbolic language in order to do it. But Revelation chapter 13 has a very interesting description of Jesus Christ. He's described as the Lamb. Now, that's not particularly novel. We've seen already in Matthew's gospel at the very beginning that John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God. That was certainly true in the other gospels as well. Jesus is the Lamb who has been come to make a sacrifice for sin. But in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, he is described as the Lamb in a very specific way. We read this, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain. Other translations describe Jesus as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. Now think about that. He is the lamb who was slain. When we think of Jesus being the lamb of God, John the Baptist saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we think of the Lamb being slain, we think of the Lamb being slain on a hill outside of Jerusalem sometime around the year 33 AD. But what John is saying in this last book of the Bible is that Jesus actually was slain not in 33 AD, but in the mind and heart of God before the foundations of the earth. In other words, before mankind had ever been created, before there was ever a Garden of Eden, before mankind had ever heard about a forbidden fruit, before mankind had ever taken that fruit and rebelled against God, before any of it, God had set in motion the means by which we would be saved even before we needed to be saved. So all of this is part of God's plan. And that's why I say these events described in Matthew chapter 26 through 28 are the heart of the gospel. If you understand this, you understand Christianity. There may be many other things that you do not understand, that you do not grasp, but if you understand this, 
you are a believer. So these are really important events. Now, the way Matthew introduces these events is by giving us, initially at least, three vignettes. He describes for us three events that lead to the Lord's death. Three events that lead to the Lord's death and three individuals who are types or representatives of the kind of individuals who were involved in these most important events. Now, again, you and I have an advantage. Uh, the disciples didn't necessarily understand these events. You and I have the advantage of hindsight. We know how the story ends. They did not. But there is a sense in which they should have understood. Now, from their vantage point, it all looked like a tragic accident, but they shouldn't have been surprised at all. Jesus had actually been talking about this for some time. Let's just go back for a moment to Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, we have the first foretelling of Jesus' death. We read, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and rebuked him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. So there you have the first foretelling of Jesus' death. It was at Caesarea Philippi. But a chapter later, you have a further retelling. At verse 22, we read, And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day and they were greatly distressed. So now we have two times in which Jesus had foretold his death. And finally, you get to Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, and you have the third retelling of Jesus' death, or foretelling of Jesus' death. Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus foretells his death three times, and each time he adds another layer of detail. In Matthew chapter 16, up there in Caesarea Philippi, he speaks of his rejection at the hands of his own people. In Matthew chapter 17, he adds the story of betrayal. He's not only going to be rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees, he came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. He's also going to be betrayed by one of those within that inner circle. And then finally, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, he talks about the contribution the Gentiles will make to his death. He's going to be betrayed, he's going to be rejected, but he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, in this case, handed over to the Romans. So Jesus has given a very detailed blow-by-blow -blow account of exactly what is going to happen to him. And as I said, when Matthew introduces these events, how that's going to unfold, what he does here is he introduces us to three individuals and three situations that lead to this great climactic moment. The first event that Jesus describes here in the verses that we have before us this morning or this afternoon is the plot of the Sanhedrin to arrest and kill him. We read these words, then the chief priests and the elders of the people 
gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Uh, the Sanhedrin was the highest body of authority within Judaism in the first century. Uh, they were a very powerful group of men. Uh, we've encountered some members of the Sanhedrin already. Uh, in John's Gospel, for example, we're told that Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. It's sometimes referred to as the ruling council. But again, these were very powerful men. They had absolute control over the religious life of every Jew, not only in Jerusalem, not only in Israel, but every Jew in the world. That means even the Jews of the diaspora. They were very powerful. You know, in our government, we have a division of authority, a division of power. We have three branches of government. Uh, we have a legislative branch, which makes the laws. We have an executive branch, which is responsible for executing the laws or enforcing the laws. And we have a judicial branch, which has the responsibility for interpreting the laws. Now, the power is not vested in any single branch of government. And that's because early on, the founding fathers recognized that human beings really cannot be trusted. The founding fathers understood that human beings are fallible, and they recognized that if you vest all of the power in one particular group, there's bound to be tyranny. So they divided up the power. Well, understand that was not the case with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had all of those powers vested in just them. So as far as Jewish life was concerned, they were the ultimate court of appeal. They had all of the judicial power. They had the power to execute the laws, enforce the laws. And they also had the power to make the laws. So the Sanhedrin was a very powerful body. And what I find interesting is that Matthew is saying that Jesus' death, we're coming to that great climactic moment, and of course, human beings are involved in it. That's what makes it so tragic, although it's not an accident, is nevertheless tragic. But Jesus is being betrayed at the highest levels of authority. This is not just a few people on the fringe who are operating against him, who are living in opposition to this one who is the chosen son of God. The opposition comes from the very highest authorities. That's the first thing we learn. Second event that is described here is one that is in stark contrast to it. And that is Jesus being anointed by this woman described in verse seven. And a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Uh, Matthew doesn't actually tell us who this woman was, but John's gospel does. We're told that it was Mary of Bethany. It was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And then the final event that Matthew introduces us to as he lays the foundation for these events is, of course, the offer of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus in verses 14 through 16. Now, there were many other people who were involved in these events, many other people who are going to be described over the course of the succeeding days. But I think the reason that Matthew introduces us to these three events and these three individuals is because, again, they are types. They are representative figures. Matthew wants us to take a look at these events and put ourselves into the story. On Good Friday, we often sing that song, Were You There 
when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Have you ever asked that question, were you there? We were all there, my friends, in one way or another. And what Matthew is trying to do is to force us to look at ourselves in the light of these events and ask ourselves, where are we in terms of our relationship with Jesus Christ? These three individuals, three, three events represent the whole of the human race. So let's take a look at these three events and these three individuals who are involved. Uh, the first event, as I said, is the plotting of the Sanhedrin for Jesus' downfall. And the individual that represents the Sanhedrin is this man by the name of Caiaphas. Again, verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Who was Caiaphas? Caiaphas was the high priest, we're told. He was the son-in-law of a man by the name of Annas. Now, technically speaking, Annas was actually the high priest. It was a hereditary position. You couldn't just run for election as high priest. And Annas was the real high priest in the minds of the Jews. But the Romans discovered that some high priests were not necessarily cooperative. Remember, the Romans controlled all of Judea. Uh, Israel was an occupied nation in the same way that France had been occupied by the Nazis in the 1940s, 1943, and 1944. And so it was a case that oftentimes the Romans discovered that the high priest would not cooperate with them, so they would get rid of the high priest, displace him, and put somebody else who was more amenable to their ideas in the position. Well, that was the case with Caiaphas. Annas, Annas had been displaced by the Romans. Caiaphas had been put in his place. He was the son-in-law, which probably made for a very interesting family dynamic. We know a couple of things about Caiaphas. First of all, we know that he had been in position for some time. He was appointed by the Roman prefect Valerius Gratus. He was the predecessor to Pontius Pilate, and he had been put in his position sometime around the year 18. He held his office for third, until 36 AD, which means that he was the high priest, at least according to the Romans, for 18 years. Now, that may seem like just an incidental fact, but it's actually quite significant, and it tells us a great deal about this man who is working to bring Jesus down. Over the course of 100 years, the Romans had deposed no less than 28 separate high priests. They'd gotten rid of 28 of them over the course of 100 years. Now, if you do the math, what that says is that most high priests lasted for about three and a half years before the Romans got tired of them and got rid of them, trying to find somebody else who would better serve the interests of Caesar and the empire. The fact that this man, Caiaphas, held his position for six times longer than most of everybody else indicates to us that he was an extremely shrewd politician. This was a man who understood on which side his bread was buttered. This was a man who cared more for his position than he cared for anything else, and he was willing to do anything to maintain his position and to maintain his power. If you want to get a sense of how conniving and how political 
this man Caiaphas was, just turn to John chapter 11 for a moment. John chapter 11 describes the resurrection of Lazarus. You know the story, Jesus had gone to Bethany, Lazarus had died and been in the tomb, and we're told that Jesus raised him from the dead. It was a very dramatic event, and it set the stage for Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem because it was a very public miracle. We're told that many of the Jews had come out from Jerusalem to comfort these sisters in the loss of their brother. So it was an extraordinary miracle. Many people saw it, and many people were in awe because of it. Uh, this is the whole reason why when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, everybody was ecstatic, tearing the palm branches from the trees and taking off their cloaks. It was because Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. He was making a very public spectacle of himself by riding in on a donkey. He was presenting himself in an unambiguous way as the Messiah, and he had just raised somebody from the dead, somebody whose body had been in the tomb and decomposing. And so the people were ecstatic. They thought he must be the Messiah. Who else could do this sort of thing? Everybody was ecstatic, except that is the Jewish religious leaders. They were dismayed by what Jesus had done. And you see this in a very powerful way in verses 45 and following of John chapter 11. Let's just go ahead and, and read through these verses. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that is the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, that was the fear. If Jesus was acclaimed as the Messiah, if Jesus was acclaimed as the king, then the Romans were going to clamp down. They were going to take away the nation, and they were going to take away the position of the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It's interesting, the scribes and the Pharisees really couldn't deny the fact that Jesus was a miracle worker. They acknowledged that he performed many signs. Even Nicodemus back in John chapter 3 said, we know that you are a man who has come from God, for no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. But in spite of being convinced in their hearts that Jesus really was a holy man sent from God, perhaps the Son of God himself, nevertheless, they were more concerned for their own position than they were for the truth. And they were willing to plot for the downfall of the Son of Man. And the ringleader, the man who was driving them, the one who was coming up with all of the ideas and calling the shots was this man, Caiaphas. How 
tragic. And he's introduced to us right here at the beginning, the beginning of this grand drama, or at least the final act of this grand drama. Now, as I said, God, in spite of the fact that this appears to be a tragic accident, was nevertheless in control. And these men were plotting and scheming, but God was still on the throne even in the midst of this. And, and you get a little taste of that. Uh, go back again to Matthew chapter 26 and just follow through this line of thinking with me. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, Jesus is once again reminding his disciples of what he had told them three times before. He is going to die. He has come to Jerusalem for this very purpose. He's going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies, and he's going to be crucified. And on the third day, he is going to be resurrected. And what he's saying to them here is that the moment has come. He says, in two days, the Passover will arrive, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So Jesus said, all of this is going to transpire in what? In 48 hours. But look at verses 3 through 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, verse 5, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The Passover was on the people. In two days, the Passover feast, the high feast of the Jewish people was going to take place. That Passover which was representative of that story in the book of Exodus where the angel of death passed over those who had the blood over the doorpost. This was the high feast day. It was, it was like Easter to the Jews, this most important event. But Caiaphas and the others didn't want Jesus to be put to death on the feast because that would ruin the feast. And so they, they acknowledged the fact that Jesus had to be destroyed. He had to be killed by this point. He'd become too much of a threat, too much power. But they said, let's wait. Let's not do it right now. Let's put it off until after the feast, which means that it would have been nine days before they were actually going to take any action against Jesus. It was two days before the Passover, and the feast itself lasted for seven. So you see a contrast here. Jesus tells his disciples that all of this is going to happen during the feast, but those who are actually plotting for his downfall say that they aren't going to do it for nine days. Now, we know as you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus was indeed crucified during the Passover, not nine days hence, not after the festival had concluded, but during the festival. And all of that was actually part of the plan. When I say the plan, not the plan of Caiaphas and the high priest, but the plan of God himself. Jesus would be crucified during the Passover at the very moment that the lambs were being slaughtered in Jerusalem. And why did it take place then? Because God was sending a very powerful message to the people that the old covenant was coming to a conclusion. A new covenant was being born. Jesus was going to be the new Lamb of God who would be slain 
from the foundations of the earth for the sins of the whole world. So here you have these men plotting, but God is still in control of the situation. There's a wonderful verse in Proverbs chapter 19 that says, many are the plans of a man's heart, but it is the Lord's will and plans that prevail. And we see that very clearly here. So the first individual we encounter, the first event we encounter is the plotting of the Sanhedrin and this man, Caiaphas, working very hard for Jesus' downfall. Now, there's a second person that Matthew introduces us to as he lays the foundation for these great events. And the second individual is this woman, Mary of Bethany. As I said, Matthew doesn't actually name her, but John does name her in chapter 12, verse 3. She's a woman who comes up to Jesus while he's in the house of Simon the leper, and she has an alabaster flask of expensive ointment. This would have been perfume. And we're told she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed to the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Uh, this was a lavish gift on the part of this woman. Um, she had planned it, apparently, for some time. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 7 says that she had kept this ointment, this perfume, awaiting the time of Jesus' death. She had an insight. She knew something, interestingly enough, that the disciples did not know, namely that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and die. Now, Jesus, as we've already seen, had told the disciples this repeatedly, but they had refused to believe it. They were completely taken by surprise when Jesus ended up being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were completely taken by surprise when Jesus was handed over to Caiaphas and Annas. They were completely surprised when Jesus stood trial before the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate. They were completely surprised when his lifeless and limp body was taken down from the cross. They had no idea that this was about to happen, in spite of the fact that they had been repeatedly warned. And yet John tells us that this woman, who was a disciple of Jesus, but not one of the inner circle, she was not one of the 12, she was simply a follower of Jesus, she nevertheless knew what he had come to earth to do, and for some time she had been storing up this ointment, this perfume, waiting for this moment. Isn't that fascinating? Peter, James, John, Andrew, all the rest had been close to Jesus, and they didn't understand what he was all about. Here was a woman who understood and who planned for his burial. She not only planned for it, but as I said, she made an extravagant offering. We're told that the ointment was worth about 300 denarii. Now, it's always hard to um, make that connection between today's currency and ancient currency, but a denarii was about a day's wage for a typical worker. Uh, Roman soldiers, for example, were paid a day's wage of one denarii. So when it says that this alabaster jar filled with expensive ointment or perfume was worth 300 denarii, we're talking that this is, this is more than Chanel number five, folks. This, this is very expensive. 
This was probably in the first century, her dowry. When a woman was going to get married, she was always expected to bring a dowry with her. If you didn't have a dowry, you were not going to get married. This was just part of the Jewish custom. So when she took this expensive ointment worth a year's wage, and she broke it, and she poured it on Jesus. This was a lavish, extravagant gift, not just in terms of how much it cost, but in terms of how much it was going to cost her. To give up her dowry was to give up her hope for a future life with a husband and a family, which was so important in first century Judaism. But what was more important to this woman was to give everything that she had, all of her hopes, all of her dreams, as an offering to Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what she did. And we're told that the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. And Jesus praised her. When the disciples said that this was a terrible thing to do, that the money could have been taken and given to the poor, Jesus replied, the poor you will always have with me. Leave her alone. She has done it to prepare for my burial. And truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we are indeed remembering what Mary did. Now, you have to ask yourself, how did Mary know what Jesus was all about when nobody else did? Caiaphas and the high priest didn't know that Jesus had come to die. They thought that they were in control of the situation. The disciples didn't realize that Jesus had come to die in spite of the fact that they had been told that repeatedly. But Mary somehow knew. She not only knew, she had prepared for this very moment. How did Mary know what no one else knew? Well, it's interesting. We only encounter Mary three places in the Gospels. And on all three occasions, we find her in precisely the same posture. Now, the first time that we encounter Mary is in Luke chapter 10. We're told that Jesus and his disciples were traveling through Bethany, and Jesus had stopped at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he was teaching. You know the story. And Martha was in the kitchen, feverishly preparing the meal. And she became frustrated because she looked into the other room hoping that her sister Mary would be on her way to help. And she finds Mary doing what? Sitting at the Lord's feet, drinking in every word that Jesus has to say. And of course, Martha got very upset. She said to Jesus, tell my sister to come and help me. And Jesus replied, Martha, Martha, you are concerned with many things, but Mary has chosen the better way and it will not be taken from her. So the first time we encounter Mary, where is she? She is at the Lord's feet. The second time we encounter her is in John chapter 11 at the death of Lazarus. We're told that Jesus arrived in the village of Bethany and Martha went out to meet him. I always imagine Martha going out with her hands on her hips and she says to the Lord, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus asks about Mary and somebody goes and gets Mary and Mary comes out. But when she sees Jesus, unlike her sister, she doesn't stand there indignant. We're told she fell on her knees in the dust before the Lord. On her knees at Jesus' feet. So the second time we encounter her, where is she? She is at Jesus' feet. And the last time that we encounter Mary in the Gospels is here in Matthew chapter 26. And where is she again? 
Once more, she is at Jesus' feet. She has broken this alabaster jar. She's poured on this ointment, and she is wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. Now, that expression, at Jesus' feet, was a Jewish idiom, and it represented being taught. If you were at a rabbi's feet, it meant that you were prepared to learn from the rabbi. In the same way that we say, I learned those lessons at my mother's knee. Some of you probably heard that expression. It represents the fact that you are learning from your mother as a child. Mary humbled herself and came before the Lord. Every time we encounter her, she is at the Lord's feet. That is to say, she was willing to learn from him. And Jesus said, she is an example for you and for me. Because she was at the Lord's feet, she had an insight that all the rest did not. Are you at the Lord's feet? Do you spend time learning from the Lord? Now, you might say to yourself, how do you do that today? Obviously, we cannot sit at Jesus' feet physically in the way that Mary did. But we can learn from the Lord. The way we do that is by studying the scriptures. Donald Gray Barnhouse was one of the great preachers of the 20th century. He pastored a Presbyterian church for many years in Philadelphia. He had a radio broadcast. He'd written a number of books. But in his early days, uh, he traveled with a very famous preacher by the name of Reuben Torrey out through California. And on one occasion, young Barnhouse was sitting next to the older Reuben Torrey. They're traveling on a train going to the older man's speaking engagement. And Barnhouse notices that Torrey is reading his Bible. Barnhouse was reading the newspaper. And Barnhouse just casually commented to Torrey. He said, you know, I would really like to know the Bible like you know the Bible. I wish I could. And Torrey, without even glancing up from the page, said, well, you'll never learn the Bible by reading the newspaper. And Barnhouse got the message. He realized that if he wanted to understand the will of the Lord, the plans of God, he needed to put down the world's reading material, and he needed to pick up God's word. And that is exactly what he did. And he became a great preacher, a great biblical teacher in his own right. My friends, that's how you gain insight into the will of God, into the plans of God. When the rest of the world is befuddled and confused, the way we come to understand God's will for our life is by sitting at the Lord's feet. And the way we do that is by studying his word, not just once a week, but every day. We hide God's word in our hearts. We read it, mark it, learn it, inwardly digest it. And we will discover an understanding that others lack. So the second event and the second person that we encounter that Matthew introduces us to as he introduces us to these great events is this woman, Mary of Bethany. And she stands in stark contrast, of course, to the first person we met, that is Caiaphas. Now there is a third person that Matthew introduces us to. We'll hear more about him later, but he's introduced to us here in these verses. And that, of course, is Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to betray him. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Incidentally, 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. So Jesus was sold for the price of a slave. 
And from that moment, we're told he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas, I think, is perhaps the most tragic figure in all of history. He was a lost soul. Now, we are sometimes reluctant to say that sort of thing. That sounds like very strong language. It sounds like we're being judgmental. Who are we to judge? How do we know that Judas was a lost soul? Well, we know it because Jesus himself said so. In John chapter 17, in speaking of Judas, Jesus described Judas as a man who was doomed to destruction. Doomed to destruction. Here in Matthew chapter 26, he said it would have been better if Judas had never been born. Now you have to ask yourself, why would Judas Iscariot betray Jesus? He had been one of the 12. Listen, he had been privy to some of the greatest miracles that Jesus performed. He had seen Jesus walk on the water. He had seen Jesus calm the waves. He had seen Jesus feed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two small fish. He had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He had seen Jesus do all kinds of extraordinary things. And furthermore, he had heard Jesus teach. He'd been there for the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps. He had been there when Jesus gave that great sermon on the plain. He had heard Jesus' parables. And yet somehow he missed what Jesus was all about. Why was it that Judas was prepared to betray Jesus when he had been a witness to these extraordinary things? We're not really told in the Gospels, but we do get some idea as to what was going on in his mind. First of all, there's every indication that he was greedy for material gain. He was concerned with the things of this earth. He said to the high priests, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Elsewhere in the other gospels, we're told that he was a man who kept the money purse for the disciples. He was the treasurer of the apostolic band. And yet we're told that he used to take money out of the purse because he was a thief. So one thing that we know about Judas was that he was a man who was deeply concerned for material gain, for material possessions. Worldly things meant a great deal to him. But there may have been something else going on in the minds of Judas Iscariot. And what also may have been going on here was that he was disappointed in Jesus. Jesus wasn't living up to his expectations. Some scholars have speculated that Judas may have been part of what was known as the Zealots, the zealots were a party within Judaism who were plotting for the overthrow of the Roman Empire. And some have argued that the name Iscariot was a form of skarios, which means zealot or insurrectionist, terrorist, basically. Others argued that that is simply a reference to the place that Judas came from. But it may be that he was part of that party it was hoping that when the Messiah came, he would be a political or military leader who would drive out the oppressive Romans. And certainly when Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, having raised Lazarus from the dead, and he comes riding into the city in triumph, everybody thought that that's what he was going to do. He's going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem in the city of David, and then he was going to do what? He was going to drive out those pagan polytheistic Romans and reestablish the Davidic dynasty and the glory days of Israel would be back. Well, Jesus made it very clear that he was the king and he had come to be lifted up, but not on a throne. He had become to be lifted up upon a cross. 
And it may very well be that that's not the kind of king that Judas was expecting. That wasn't the kind of kingdom that he was anticipating. And so perhaps disappointed in Jesus, discouraged by the Lord's message, he turned against him. He may have thought to himself, well, if this is what you are all about, then that's not the kind of Messiah we want. Better to get rid of you. But whatever the case, Judas did betray Jesus. And the Lord said he was lost for eternity as a consequence. I think there's at least one very important lesson that we can learn from Judas Iscariot, and that is this. It is not place. It is grace that makes a man or a woman a child of God. Let me repeat that. It is not place. It is grace that makes a person a child of God. Judas Iscariot had wandered with Jesus for three years. Judas Iscariot had been subject to the greatest teacher the world had ever known. And he still missed what Christianity was all about. Folks, it's not enough simply to go to church. It's not enough simply to hear the gospel. There is something else that is required. Now, as I said, there are other individuals who we are going to see play roles in these climactic events of Matthew. But he introduces us to these three. Why? Because, again, they are representative figures. Matthew wants us to read through these events and put ourselves in the narrative. He wants us to ask ourselves, who am I most like? Which of these three people do I most resemble? Am I like Caiaphas? I'm not all that interested in Jesus Christ, all that interested in the Christian gospel, because I am more concerned with my position, my position in society. And I'm afraid that if I give myself wholly and completely over to the Lord, what that means is that I will lose that status, that position. Oh, we may not do it in as overt and dramatic a way as Caiaphas did, but we sometimes do it, don't we? We sometimes deny or betray Jesus Christ because we are concerned with how other people view us. Or are we like Judas? We turn our backs on the Lord because he disappoints us. Some tragedy or difficulty has come into our life, and we think that God has somehow betrayed us, and so we feel that we're justified in turning our back and betraying him. Or are we simply too concerned with material gain? We don't have time for God. Maybe at some point in the future when we're getting close to our death, after we've had all of our fun, but not right now. Or why are we like Mary of Bethany? Are we like that woman who sat at the Lord's feet, who studied his word, who hid it in her heart, who gained an insight into the things of God that the others simply did not have? Are we giving our lives, our souls and bodies? Isn't that what we say every Sunday in the Eucharistic prayer? And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. Are we giving all that we have, pouring it out as a costly ointment in the service of the Lord? 
Which one are we most like in this story? As we approach these climactic events of all of history, what role are we playing? That's the question that Matthew wants us to ask. It may be that we are more like Judas than we would like to admit. It may be that we are more like Caiaphas than we would like to admit. It may be that we are not as much like Mary as we should be. But the good news, my friends, is that God is in the business of changing hearts. God is the one who is able to take that hardened heart and break it up and turn it into fertile soil. As we come to the climactic events of history, the story of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, God grant us the grace to sit at his feet, to study these things, to learn these things. And having discovered what Jesus Christ has done for us, then to give ourselves in service to him who gave everything for us, to pour ourselves out as living sacrifices in love and service to the Lord. Next week, when we come together, we are going to take a look at an event that was very important, but it has proved very controversial. And that is the institution of the Lord's Supper, the last supper that Jesus would eat with his disciples. And we're going to take a look at the significance of that event and how it's been understood by the church in the century since. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today grateful for your word. This is a challenging word for us. We realize that we are not as much like Mary of Bethany as we would like. Sometimes we're a lot like the disciples. We are completely lost. We're in the dark as to what you are doing in history. Sometimes we are like Caiaphas. We are so much concerned for how others regard us, for our position, our status in society or in the community, that we are willing to turn our backs on Jesus Christ. Sometimes we're like Judas Iscariot. All we're concerned about is the stuff of life, thinking that if we die with uh, an accumulation of stuff, we have won. But Lord, what does it profit a man or a woman if they gain the whole world but lose their own soul like Judas did? Grant us the grace, we pray, to be like Mary, to come humbly and sit at your feet, to find that even if we lose everything and have you, we have gained all that our hearts desire. Grant us the grace to do this, Lord, we pray, for our sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you very much. I don't know if we have any questions that have come in. Chat down there. It might be at the bottom there. You can read it to me, please. We know from John 12 7 that she really knew that Jesus was going to be killed. I, the question is from John 17. Is that what she's referring to? From John 12 7, Martha asked the question, How do we know that she really understood that Jesus was going to be killed? It's not just from John chapter 12, but it's from this passage as well, because it said that she had been saving this ointment for the day of his death. Jesus makes that point. And so I think that's how we know. 
Um, it doesn't exactly say that, but it indicates, or Jesus indicates that she had been saving it for this time. And I think that's an indicator that she understood. She wasn't simply making a lavish offering. She was making a lavish offering in preparation for his ultimate demise. Martha asks, where exactly does it say that, that she was preparing the man for? It's in Matthew, I think it's in Matthew chapter 26, we've just been looking at. Where it says here, uh, let's see what it is. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So that seems to be an indicator to us that she understood what it was all about. What chapter and verse is that? It's Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 11. Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with me, with you, but you will not always have me. Okay. Any other questions? Question from Trip Hathaway. Okay. Other than that Judas, Judas acts help to fulfill what must be done, how do we understand that creation of man that is doomed to destruction? Any text? Can you pull that up on your All right, let me just see if I can pull up the, the chats down here, folks. It takes yeah. me a second here. You can read it directly. Take it down here. Mm -hmm. Okay, let me find the chat here. Okay, I have the chat. chat i'm sorry we'll get it for you i know the trip hathaway has a a question so hold on trip as soon as we i do okay so here's the question from from trip hathaway other than the judas acts help to fulfill what must be done how do we understand that creation of a man that is doomed to destruction. Well, <laughs> that's a that's a that's a great question, um, Trip. Um, it certainly sounds like predestination, doesn't it? Um, it sounds like the doctrine of election here. I think there's a mystery involved here with Judas. You know, somebody can um, look at this and say, well, if Judas was all part of the plan, if Jesus had to be crucified if this was part of God's intent from the beginning, even before the foundations of the earth, then perhaps Judas is not in any way held responsible. How can we hold him responsible? There is a mystery here. I think what we can say is that you and I are responsible for our own actions, but God is in the process of redeeming those actions and using them. And so, for example, um, we're told that God numbers the hairs on our head. Uh, God knows when each of us is going to die. He knows the fall of the sparrow from the sky. So, for example, if I'm walking down the street and I get stabbed by somebody, it is God's will that I die at that particular moment, but it is not God's will that that person stab me or kill me. In other words, the person is not off the hook simply because God in his sovereignty knows what's going to happen to me. God is in the process of using this. It may very well be that God knew beforehand, before the foundations of the earth, the kind of character, the kind of decision that Judas was going to make. And therefore, on that basis, use the decisions that Judas would make as part of his plan. Now, this is sometimes referred to as theologians as middle knowledge. God has a middle knowledge, an understanding of the events. It doesn't necessarily mean that he causes them, 
but he is aware of them. He understands them and utilizes them in his plan of salvation. But again, we have to tread very carefully here. Um, this does indeed involve, I think, the doctrine of election. It does indeed involve the doctrine of predestination. That's something that makes people very uncomfortable. Um, many people would say, well, I thought that's a Presbyterian doctrine. Um, actually, it's a biblical doctrine. And you can find reference to it in the 39 articles in the back of the prayer book. As a matter of fact, the longest of the articles of religion in the prayer book deal with the doctrine of predestination and election, which the English reformers referred to as a doctrine filled with pure, sweet, and unspeakable comfort to godly people. So it is a bit of a mystery, um, but I think at the very least what we can say is that God, being sovereign, knew the type of person that Judas was, the decisions that Judas would make, and he simply employed them in his great plan. There may be more to it than that, but at the very least, I think we can say that. Great question, though. Okay, Martha, you have another question there? Okay, it just came in. Hold on one second. Okay, can you please repeat the quote at the very beginning of your lesson about Jesus' death being the point where past history points towards and where future history points from? Uh, I think that you, because Jesus is described as the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth, from a theological point of view, history doesn't simply have a starting point. Now, that, that's the way the Jews understood it. Let me just talk a little bit about history and, and the views of history that people have had. Uh, the Greeks believed that history was cyclical, all right? That history was a, a cycle. It was just something that went round and round like a carnival barker's wheel of fortune. Uh, somebody once asked Henry Ford what it was like to be a man who made history, and he said, history is bunk. He said, it's just the succession of one damn thing after another. And that's pretty much the way the Greeks viewed history. Uh, they believed that history was like the seasons of the year. Uh, you have spring, which turns into summer. Summer turns into autumn. Autumn turns into winter. But then winter turns back into spring again, and it just goes round and round. There's no point to history. There's no direction to history. Therefore, you might as well enjoy life. You only go around once, grab all the gusto you can get. Eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because tomorrow you die. There's no purpose. There's no direction to history. The Jews did not believe that. It's one of the reasons why Paul was so disappointed when he arrived in Athens and found the Epicureans and the Stoics, because they believed that history had no purpose. But as a Jew, Paul believed that. He believed that history had a definite beginning. It's described there in Genesis. God created the heavens and the earth. The universe was not eternal. And all of history was moving toward a great climactic event. And that great and climactic event was that day when God would set the broken and fallen world right. Paul came to understand that that great and climactic event was the arrival of the Messiah and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, Christian theologians sometimes see that, the culmination of all history, as the centerpiece. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we don't measure time from a fixed point at the beginning, but a fixed point in the center. Now, we've changed this somewhat in Western culture and Western textbooks today, but history, from a Christian point of view, is measured in terms of B.C. and A.D. Isn't that how we measure time? Something happened in 37 B.C., something happened in 2000 A.D. 
Now, sometimes that in modern parlance is referred to as BCE, before the Common Era, and ACE, after the Common Era. But it doesn't make any difference because the focal point that is used to measure that time is the arrival of Jesus Christ. So from a Christian point of view, history is not simply measured from a fixed point at the beginning that's going on toward a fixed point at the end. The focal point of all history is the arrival of Jesus Christ, what he had come to do. That is the fixed point. And Jesus' death upon the cross has a power and an effect that flows forth from that fixed point forward and backward in time. So, for example, when we talk about the Old Testament saints who were saved, how were they saved? They were saved in precisely the same way that you and I are saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that, that's impossible because they died long before Jesus ever appeared historically on the scene, and that's true. But because Jesus' death is an event that has a, an effect that flows forward and backward in history, they were saved in just the same way that we were. Moses and Abraham looked forward to the death of Jesus Christ. You and I look back to the death of Jesus Christ, but it is the death of Jesus Christ that saves us all. So it's a different way of reckoning history. It's to recognize that really the focal point of all history is the cross. And the power of that cross flows forward and backward in time. It's deep stuff, but it's important stuff to understand that that's the centerpiece of it all. Great question. Anybody else? Martha, you're, you're, you're talking, but you're muted. And we'll take this as the last question, and then we'll, um, we'll sign off until next week. We'll take a look at the Lord's Supper next week. Okay, Martha, you're on. Oh, oh. So, and then the future. I can't hear you. Okay, um, Martha, try again. The future, can you hear me? I can hear you now. Okay, the future also has no fixed point because it goes on for eternity, correct? We don't, we don't think of the end of the world as we know it as the end. Uh, so really, there is no fixed point future, at least for Christians, correct? No, there's a sense in which, yes, we're eternal beings. And right. so there is a sense in which we go on forever. Actually, one of the things that the scriptures teach is that we were all created for eternity. It's just a question of whether we are created for an eternity with God or an eternity separated right. from God. Okay, yeah, yeah. But yes, human beings are eternal creatures. I mean, that, that's one of the things that's unique about us. That's one of the reasons why I think we fear death and we mourn death in a way that animals do not. Animals don't seem to be the least bit bothered by the prospect of their own demise but human beings do. And that's because we were created for eternity. We recognize there is something wrong with death. Death is unnatural. It may be a part of life, but it is unnatural to us. And it's one of the reasons why there's a, every fiber of our being, we resist it and we revolt against it. But there is a sense in which history as we know it will come to an end. Right, right. There is a sense in which this world as we know it will be set right. And the flow of history will be uh, in a very dramatic way, um, altered. Okay, well, those are great questions, folks, and I'm always delighted to answer them. 
I'm looking forward to be back with you. It's always a, a stilted thing when you're on this kind of a, a broadcast, but I'm so delighted that you keep showing up week after week. Uh, next week should be interesting because we are going to be talking about um, the Lord's Supper, the institution of Holy Communion. Uh, we'll talk about the significance of the event of the Last Supper itself, what Jesus was doing with his disciples, but we're also going to talk about the various views that the church has had of what that Last Supper represents and what Holy Communion is really all about. There have been four views that basically have come into the life of the church as a result of the Lord's institution of Holy Communion, and we'll take a look at them next week and which views we think are perhaps more acceptable than others. So we'll take a look at all of that next week. But God bless you. It's great to see you. Take care and uh, stay safe and stay healthy.